0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. Welcome. It is my great honor and pleasure to introduce Simon Schaffer, professor of the history of science at Cambridge University. And since he's now halfway through his four-day visit here, uh, some of you will have heard him introduced in recent days, but I'm going to give you my own take on who he is, um, And it will indeed be a pleasure, but not a simple one by any means. Rather, it's a highly complex pleasure because of the range and variety of his work and the beauty and importance of the individual pieces. I I don't like to skip any, and I only have five minutes. But let me begin with an overall picture. Professor Schaffer's work in the area of 17th, 18th, and 19th century science has opened up every aspect of the engagement of the sciences with social, political, and cultural life. He has written on the relations of the sciences to popular culture, religion, occultism, imperialism, commerce, and political theology. He has chronicled the expanding role and transforming aspect of measurement in science and social life. He has examined how natural science and technology figured in Romantic and Victorian culture and society and vice versa. And he has redirected scholarship on central figures of the sciences, Newton, as we've been seeing this week, um, and Hook, Halley, Boyle, Babbage. I could go on uh, if I didn't only have five minutes. Professor Schaffer's great project has been to show the sciences being constituted by many aspects of human life and society, but especially by the practical, economic, and political. He has established, for example, the crucial role that artisanal and industrial practices played in the development of scientific instruments and experimental techniques, Uh, how, for example, craft practices in the dye trade uh, informed the development of electrical physics, Um, In his work on Charles Babbage, for another instance, he has exposed the economic and political motivations at work in Babbage's attempts to design intelligent intelligent machines with an ultimate aim of removing intelligent functioning from individual human workers to an overall uh, mechanical system. And that study um, that I'm describing is one of a group of foundational essays on the early history of automation, that exhibit, I think, a real hallmark of Professor Schaffer's, uh, which is that they meld all the subdisciplines of history, social, cultural, biographical, intellectual, economic. Now, the body of work that I've been describing includes, by my count, over 100 essays and articles appearing in seven languages, four major edited volumes, one of which, um, The Sciences in Enlightened Europe, actually has no um, spot on my bookcase because it essentially never leaves my desk. And, of course, the landmark field-transforming 1985 book, Leviathan and the Air Pump. In this book, as many of you know, Professor Schaffer and his co-author Stephen Shapin examined the dispute between Robert Boyle and Thomas Hobbes about what was really going on in Boyle's air pump. Both sides, the book argues, were preoccupied with the problem of social stability in the aftermath of civil war. Boyle and his collaborators claimed that an experimental approach to the, to the world, um, cleaving only to facts stripped of theoretical commitments, would bring consensus. Hobbes, for his part, denied that Boyle's experimental facts were theory-free and called them artifacts, the products of a commitment to vacuism, belief in a, in a vacuum, um, and a leaky pump. Meanwhile, whereas Boyle warned against the divisiveness of theory, Hobbes instead feared that experimental philosophers claiming a separate kind of knowledge and, what's worse, over an ontologically discrete realm, the the putative vacuum, were precisely equivalent to the clerical intellectuals who had threatened the civic order during the Civil War. In his insistence that experimental facts were artifactual things, the products of human actions, Leviathan and the Air Pump famously ends, Hobbes was right. Until Leviathan in the Air Pump, that is for more than three centuries, Boyle had been the undisputed winner of his argument with Hobbes. Since Leviathan in the Air Pump, I think it, it is no longer possible or certainly anyway it's not responsible to teach about Boyle and the development of the experimental doctrine without highlighting the ways in which Hobbes and Schaffer and Chapin were right. The book received the Erasmus Prize for exceptionally... Um, Uh, important contribution to European culture in 2005, and just as an instance of its pervasive cultural importance, I learned this over dinner the other evening, the Australian techno-rock band Decoy actually released a CD called Leviathan in the Air Pump. So, you know, never mind Amazon rankings, how many of us have an eponymous indie rock CD? Well, I'm, I'm out of time just about, and I've given you just the barest glimpses of an oeuvre that has embraced comets and soap bubbles and tattoos, none of which I have mentioned, although you can hear about the tattoos in tomorrow's seminar. I haven't told you anything about Professor Schaffer's curatorial projects or about the television series on the history and science of light that he hosted um, on the BBC, which you can watch on, uh, on YouTube now, but you'll have to find out about all of those things on your own, I do just want to add one more note just to end with a personal reflection. What you might not know from reading his work is that Simon is a person of great intellectual generosity. When an unknown postdoc arrived literally on his doorstep one summer afternoon in 1998 asking for advice, he spent the rest of his day talking with her and helping to plan a research itinerary and sent her off with all of his own work in progress on related topics. A student of the great manipulators and power mongers of the history of science, I would say that Simon himself represents something like the opposite. That is, he brings to the furtherance of other people's projects exactly the same energy and excitement that animate his own. Now that is a rare and lovely thing, harder to measure than the many accomplishments I've been describing, but surely no less important. Professor Schaffer is speaking this evening on Newton on the Ganges the Asiatic Enlightenment of British Astronomy. Please join me in welcoming him.
1: Um, Thank you, Jessica. Uh, As they say uh, in the part of London that I come from, follow that. Um, This is the second of uh, my lectures this week. Um, You're not entirely disadvantaged. Hang on, I'm not on. on. Um, You're not entirely disadvantaged if you wisely missed the first lecture because I'm going to refer to some of that material about three quarters of the way through this one. As further administrative uh, preliminary I should also say that as far as tomorrow's seminar is concerned you don't have to be tattooed to come but it would be an advantage and I risk saying because I'm aware that this is something of an obstacle for busy folk like yourselves that you don't really have to read the paper. You can sit at the other end of the table and read the paper during the seminar and save up your intervention for just before the end so to cover what you've been doing while I've been speaking. And I'll talk for about 15 minutes at the start of the seminar tomorrow with pictures and conversations about the content of the paper. So do come along. I risk saying that. Okay, that's enough of that. Newton on the Ganges, the Asiatic Enlightenment of British Astronomy. Let me start with a verse, which I will read out. Alas, the zest of learning's cup is gone. All bathed in tears of dew, the stars look down with mournful eyes in lamentation deep. For he, their sage beloved, is dead, who first to Islam's followers explained their laws, their distances, their orbits, and their times, as great Copernicus once half-divined and greater Newton proved, but useless now. Their works we turn with idle hand and scan with vacant eye, our own first master gone. Those lines were written, as you see, in London in 1802, in the salon of the wife of a Tory member of parliament, and they were written in Persian, and they were written by a Shiite scholar from Lucknow, in Aud in northern India, called Abu Talib Khan, who was in London in order to discuss becoming a teacher of Persian and Arabic at the College of the East India Company at Haleybury, a post he refused on the grounds of the sheer linguistic incompetence of all the East India Company administrators whom he met. However, these lines, as you see, are a eulogy, a classical Persian courtly form, here translated into English by one of the East India Company's men, whom Abu Talib uh, failed to praise as an expert on Persian. So doubtless the translation is inaccurate. And the lines are to the memory of the man whose work concerns me in what I want to say this evening Tafatsul Hussein Khan, who died in Lucknow in the end of 1800, and the news of whose demise must have reached Abu Talib Khan in London at the end of 1801. And the reason why. I want to think about Tafatzul's project, at least the principal and obvious reason why I want to think about him, is touched upon in the final lines of the extract here, as great Copernicus once half divined and greater Newton proved. Because Tafatsoul translated Newton's Principia into Arabic in Calcutta in 1789, and that means that the second foreign language into which Newton's work was translated, was Arabic. And that the translator was a North Indian Shiite, the first translation into a foreign tongue was into French by the Marquise de Châtelet in the 1750s, the third Russian in the early 1800s. This is not a very well-known fact it's news, for example, so I discovered 12 months ago, to various Nobel Prize winners who have recently held forth in the pages of the Times Literary Supplement and elsewhere about, I think, scandalously held forth, about the inadequacies of Islamic science and the absence of a response to Newton in Islam. That's not what I'm going to discuss this evening. We can discuss that when I finish talking. Rather, my aim here is to explore the various uses to which Newton's project was put in the early decades of British company rule in India, that's to say after the late 1750s. I propose first to explore the Shiite aim in rendering the masterpiece of British astronomy into Arabic and at much more length, mea maxima culpa, To recapture what this tells us, I think, about the way in which British scholars, administrators, and uh, civil servants did with Newton in India on the Ganges. Ever since the enterprises of sacred history produced during Britain's civil wars and the subsequent conjectural narratives of the Scottish Enlightenment, histories of the exact sciences in general and of Newtonianism in particular, have played, of course, an indispensable role in making accounts of ethnic origin and the roots of modernity. After Newton, as scholars such as Michael Adas have shown us, Western societies saw global dominance and legitimacy marked in their possession of superior forms of exact knowledge and technique, not just the Gatling gun, but the Principia as well. Histories of the sciences have followed suit, either by celebrating the gradual but inevitable triumph of Western forms of knowledge or by mourning the destruction of indigenous learning in the face of of imperial tyranny. Almost said imperial empiricism there. Despite their ideological differences, both these narratives see the sciences as forms of theoretical analysis capable of what we might call frictionless diffusion. Frictionless diffusion and emplacement elsewhere. And against those frictionless models, more recent historians, we talked about this in yesterday's seminar, have instead used the field sciences rather as their pattern. And treating astronomy and physics as those rather strange cases of the more common far reaching enterprises of natural history and ethnography. So historians would now thus celebrate the intimate dialogue sustained between colonizer and colonized or else mourn the systematic suppression of the debts owed to indigeneity and the fatal denial of dependence. I think what's interesting to notice here is the way in which these narratives of the sciences play a role both as the cause and as the effect of the imperial encounter. They're causal, since apparently they provide imperialists with powerful resources, and they're symptomatic, since the sciences are so signally marked by the history of colonialism. Now what I want to do uh, with us this evening is to offer a kind of inflection to that, because I want to say, I guess more than anything else, that an important use of Uh, The of uh, excuse me, but an important use of what we might call colonial astronomy was to show how the new colonizer, the settler, was in fact already present in the colonized territory. That seems to me to be a very important use of Newton on the Ganges. What I want to show you is the way in which. Newton is deployed to show that the British are already in India, that they have returned, that they have not arrived de novo. In other words, imperial dominance could thus be represented as a form of return to the colonized culture's original condition. And furthermore, this exploitation of colonial astronomy let the colonizer, in this case, The astronomers of the East India Company represent the current occupants of the territory as decadent, utterly decadent with respect to that original moment. So it wasn't just that Newton on the Ganges helped the British imagine they were coming back home but that their home was older and more legitimate and more vital and more possessed of integrity than the culture that the British encountered. That was the claim. The historian I think who's made this argument best for the Indian case is my Glasgow colleague Colin Kidd in his study of what Newton himself called the ethnic theology of early modern culture. Colin writes the scriptural paradigm shaped the response of Britain's to their empire in the East. These early Orientalists did not seek to establish Indian otherness, but its degenerate affiliation with the British within the universal noarchic, understand scriptural, family of nations, unquote. And all I would add is that Newton's astronomy was a powerful resource in establishing this claim and Newton's astronomy's Indian fate, F-A-T-E, was marked by this exploitation and hence at least one reason to be interested in Tafatsul Hussein Khan. So I've mapped here um, his career. He was uh, born in 1727 in our era, the year Newton's died. Spooky. Um, he was born in what is now Kashmir in Sialkot. Um, he was a Shiite. He studied at the Farangi Mahal, the great college in Lucknow from 1745 uh, after working in Delhi. He was an administrator, courtier and scholar for the regime of awad uh, based around Lucknow and Allahabad and uh, as they say, he lived in proverbially interesting times, tragically enough. In particular, he lived during uh, a period when the British, uh, under their military commander, Sir Robert Barker, of whom more are and the new Governor-General, Warren Hastings, based in Calcutta, were rapidly expanding control north and west from Bengal, up the Gangetic Plain into the area controlled by Aoud. So here we see Barker, the commander of the um, army, um, ne- in negotiation with the Aoud in- regime at Benares, Varanasi, in 1765, as it was represented by an Aoud artist uh, working in Faisalabad in 1774. There are many things to say about this remarkable image. One which will become relevant towards the end of my talk is the salience of inscription here of the British possession of maps, of surveys, of charts and other inscription devices recognized by the Auld artist. This is the court where Tafatsul worked represented by the fashionable East India Company artist Tilly Kettle this is Shuja ud-Dawlah, ruler of Aud and uh, uh, ruler of Tafatsul's fate, on the left with his sons, and on the right, the British commander, General Barker, his officers, and his translator. This, I couldn't resist, is an Aud representation of Tilly Kettle making that image. So this is the art, uh, this is the Englishman making this image. Just to register a certain symmetry of representation here. But what I want to focus on is what happens to Tafatsul when he leaves the employment of the Auld regime and begins to work as an intermediary for the East India Company. This happens from the 1770s in negotiation with the Marathas and then with other opponents of the East India Company regime. What was important was that Sul became not an but the indispensable intermediary between the company and various native powers. He was judged by the British and I quote as representing all that was wise, learned and good among the Muslims, unquote. And in the various armed camps of the 1780s where he spent his time translating, negotiating and working as an intermediary, he discussed with British officers, and I quote, the different laws, customs and manners of Europe and Asia on Persian Arabic and Hindu literature and above all on the sciences of mathematics and astronomy in which he made a considerable proficiency, unquote. So he came to this city, Calcutta, in um, 1786, 1787 as vakil, as delegate of the regime of Al and he lived in one of the southern Calcutta suburbs, Rusa where he established close relations with the Governor General, Warren Hastings, and with the Governor General's chief surveyor, a man called Reuben Burrow, of whom much more in a moment. This is a magnificent image of the company's headquarters. You're looking down towards the, the River hooghly You see the fort, Fort William, in the distance, here with the the masts of the vessels in in the river, the monument to the victims of the black hole of Calcutta, which the company erected. You see the writers building the center of company administration, and the old courthouse with the troops of the company, the sepoys, standing guard and their rifles in front. And it was in that room, the old jury room on the Piano Nobile, that in January of 1784 the Governor-General Warren Hastings and the head of the Supreme Court, Sir William Jones, established the Asiatic Society, which met monthly from then on to debate the history and antiquities, sciences and literature of Asia, to quote their founding charter. It was the network, in other words, around the jurisprudence, the orientalism and the politics of the company that Tafatsoul both interacted with and magnificently exploited. It was a crucial network for his program. To improve his command of the company's language, he, and I quote from one of his letters, read a history of England, but I have since given it up as worthless," unquote. So historians don't always have an advantage, John. Instead, he saw much more advantage in working on the canonical texts of 18th century surveying. He understood the roots of the company's power, accountancy and maps. He studied the great treatise of algebra by the mathematics professor at the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich, Thomas Simpson, that had been published back in 1745. Such texts then helped him make sense of the most important material that he began to work on, Edmund Halley's edition of the De sectione Rationis of Apollonius, which had been first printed in Latin in Oxford in 1706. The precise transmission mechanisms then, between the classical mathematical tradition, its Newtonian version, it, its, its arrival in Calcutta and Tufatsoul's encounter with it, become extremely fascinating. Reuben Burrow, whom I've mentioned already, the chief surveyor of the company in Bengal, describes what Tafatsoul did, and I'll just read out this description for you. Tafazzul says Barrow is now employed in translating Apollonius. The fate of this work is singular. It was translated from Greek into Arabic, and the Greek original is lost, and it was afterwards translated from Arabic into Latin from an old manuscript in the Bodleian library, and the Arabic of it is now lost somewhere in Asia. I, Burroughs says, translated the Latin into English and from the English, Tafatzul, to improve his command of our tongue, is now rendering it into Arabic again." This tangled network of translation and mediation was used by the Asiatic Society scholars to place Tafatzul's project into what they took to be its appropriate context. Now that's not the only context into which Tafatsul's project can be placed. Let me emphasise that for the Shiite scholarly community in Calcutta and elsewhere in northern India, Tafatsoul is a characteristic but exceptional intellectual and diplomat. He is described in his Persian uh, obituary um, as a pious Shiite who also knew, apart from Persian and Arabic, English and the Roman tongue, the company men call Latin, which is the learned language of the Europeans, in which they write their scholarly books, such as they are and which has the same position among them as Arabic among us. Hence, Tafetzul's project to translate these works into Arabic rather than, for example, Farsi. The principal project, as I've already pointed out, of Tafetzul in the summer of 1789, when the English and the French were thinking about something completely different, was a difficult and time-consuming one the translation of the whole of the Principia into Arabic. And let me re-emphasize how remarkable this project is. As I've said, there were but a Latin and an English and a French version of this work when Tafatzul began. It began in the summer of 89 and continued for a year with Reuben Burroughs' encouragement. For Tafatsul then, and for his Shiite, Mughal, and Farsi Colleagues, this was doubtless a development of the general program to master, understand, and incorporate British rational astronomy and calculation. The company's men, however, such as the Scottish physician William Hunter, who was the Asiatic Society's secretary, put the project in a completely different setting. So this is Hunter... um, telling the Asiatic Society what Tufexel's translation of Newton means and this is what it means. I quote, because I'm guessing you can't all quite see that, I have always thought that after having convinced the eastern nations of our superiority in policy and in arms, nothing can contribute more to the extension of our national glory than the diffusion amongst them of a taste for European science. And as the means of promoting so desirable an end, those among the natives who had penetration to see and ingenuously to own its superior accuracy and evidence ought to be cherished. Among those of the Islamic faith, Tafatzul Hussein Khan, who by translating the works of the immortal Newton has conducted those imbued with Arabic literature to the fountain of all physical and astronomical knowledge is above my praise. Now what's interesting about this is presumably laudatory responses of this form might falsely tend to make even now and even for us The significance, the content, and the worth of Newton's astronomy self evident. The enterprise of translating the Principia, that is to say, a retour au source, a move to the fountain of all physical and astronomical knowledge, might seem entirely self evident. Who would not be seduced by this image? But what I want to do in the balance of my paper is to ask a different question. I want to ask rather about the idiosyncratic sense given Newton in Calcutta and what the British scholars there were doing with the Principia such that Tafatsul could encounter it. What I want to suggest is that in Bengal, along the Ganges, Newton offered its most loyal dev- his most loyal devotees, such as William Jones and William Hunter and Reuben Burrow, not only an account of the mechanics of the solar system, it certainly did that, but perhaps at least as importantly, Newton offered them a history of how that account had come into being. And that's what I want to dwell on for the balance of my talk. Since what I want to suggest is that, and this is an approach made familiar, of course, by many previous studies of the history of oriental studies, including Uh, my most eminent predecessor Edward Said in this lectureship, British intellectuals sought to make themselves, as I've already hinted, into the new owners of the Indian past as though the company's Newtonian servants had in some strange way already been there earlier than the current scholars and administrators in place in Hindustan. So here's a couple of examples from the Asiatic Society project that are designed to show that. On the left, a chronological table by the president of the Asiatic Society, William Jones, made just a few months before Tafatsul began his translation. And what Jones shows you is the parallelism in historical development of Christian, British, and Sanskrit, Hindu chronologies in which Adam and Manu are to be identified um, as having lived 5,794 years ago, that's to say before 1788. Um, Noah is identified with another avatar of of Manu, the deluge is recognized in both cultures oddly Jones pointed out Christ does not seem to have a Sanskrit equivalent, but the continuity is drawn right through to very proximate Sanskrit and Mughal history through uh, Mahmud of Ghazni, Genghis Khan, uh, Tamburlain, Babur, and Nadir Shah, the great conqueror of the Gangetic Plain. So a continuity is asserted from scriptural to contemporary cosmology and that continuity is calibrated against scriptural and Newtonian (coughs) chronology. Both of these moves are being made. Similarly, in Samuel Davis's work, Sam Davis was William Jones's favorite astronomical assistant, Sanskrit astronomy, one of the most impressive astronomical programs of the classical world embodied above all in a text called the Surya Siddhanta which analyzes the uh, positions of stars and planets and eclipses and transits and traces the chronological order of the current Kali Yuga in which as you know we are living is calibrated against the nautical almanac of Greenwich so that on the one hand I mean exactly the same move is made as the move from Jones On the one hand, the validity of ancient learning is underscored. The Surya Siddhanta is astonishingly accurate in comparison with the Nautical Almanac. That's one half of the argument. But the other half of the argument is that one only knows that because one is calibrating this learning against the Nautical Almanac. So this is simultaneously to argue that Sanskrit learning is reliable, but the reason we know that is because it's almost as good as being an Englishman.
2: Now there are two ways,
1: it seems to me, this is where you will suddenly be relieved that you didn't have to be here two days ago now. The laudable undertaking, as Jones calls it, of doing that double movement of praise and calibration is underwritten in two ways, specific ways, by the order of Newtonianism. One is the theme that I picked out in the lecture two days ago, which is the reliance of the Principia on a complex network of reliable global information. In Bengal, especially in Calcutta, especially in the Asiatic society, this fact, though apparently forgotten by most 21st century historians of Newton, was extremely well known. That is to say, the Principia was interpreted universally by the astronomers in Calcutta, the English astronomers in Calcutta, as having pulled together in England data from all over the planet. And I show you this map again because what I've done here is to map perversely on a chart illustrating the voyages of Robinson Crusoe. That's the bit I'm not going to explain if you missed Monday's lecture. So it's a little frustrating for a little teaser there. Um, What I've done here is to map... um, ...the sources of Newton's data... ...and to show you their global... ...but above all their commercial political distribution. This is simultaneously a map... ...of the world of the major British trading companies... ...and the Society of Jesus... ...and it's a map of the third book of Newton's Principia. One could... ...one should go on... ...I won't... ...again I will not go into details... ...to particular instances of Newton's numerical data, in this case the source of the information for Newton's work on the height of tides in various oceans. As I explained in my lecture on Monday, an exceptionally important source for Newton were the tidal observations of the pilots of the East India Company, uh, Francis Davenport in, in particular, and I now want to draw your attention to the fact that this map is made for the Honourable, the Governor, Deputy and Court of Committees of the Company of Merchants Trading to the East Indies. In other words, Newton's implication in the history of the East India Company is very clear. That's half of the use of Newton to the company men in Bengal. But there's another side to the Newtonian project which made his work even more indispensable to the strange trick that I'm trying to describe to you, and this can stand as its symbol. If I'd known that the Cantor Art Gallery was showing this week my favourite image of Stonehenge, which is Bill Brandt's photograph called Stonehenge in the Snow, made in 1947, I would have shown you that but I don't have to because you can now all go to the Cantor Gallery and see that extraordinary photograph. So I have to rely on this, which is Newton's copy uh, from Trinity College Cambridge of William Camden's Britannia, the 1634 edition, which shows Stonehenge in Wiltshire. Why? Because Newton thought that this structure is an image of the Newtonian system of the world. Newton thought, and made this explicit in a series of texts composed from 1681 well into the 1720s, that primordially Newtonianism, he didn't call it that, the doctrine of attraction, had been distributed across the surface of the globe, that it had been known to an elite group of elect savants, that they had encoded the doctrine of attraction, of vacuism, of heliocentrism, and of Newtonian mechanics in a series of temples called Pritanea, all of which involve concentric circles of stones around a central fire, which is how he interprets Stonehenge in Wiltshire, and as he says, similar temples in the Indies, and in China. Tragically, this true doctrine had been lost, so Newton argued, and here his work on alchemy played a crucial role, since it simultaneously defined the kind of role that these expert elite specialists would discharge in their society, and it would explain how if a doctrine is true, it's very likely to be secret. This doctrine had been lost because a group of corrupt, evil, Catholic priests had um, insinuated plenism, geocentrism, the worship of kings, the, the principle of divine right, and Jesuitism and Cartesianism. The publication of the Principia, Newton argued, was an attempt to overthrow that corruption and restore the pristine truth that his doctrine taught. That was what Newtonianism meant to Newton. But in particular, what I want to emphasize is that Newton argued that the truths carried by specialist expert travelers, Pythagoras, Orpheus, as he puts it, Plato in his riper years. So his alchemical diffusionism gave a very specific role to the the reliable expert astronomer-traveller. And that made Newtonianism of this kind a very specifically useful and appropriate resource for the kind of role being discharged by William Jones and Sam Davis and Reuben Burrough in cities such as Calcutta and Varanasi in the late 18th century. They knew Newton as the author of this kind of doctrine alongside the doctrine in the Principia itself. Working with this material then, um, Jones, Burrow, and others developed two features that made Calcutta Newtonianism specific. First, the conquerors, the elite who did the work of virtuous diffusion, were provisionally to be identified with a cognate of Buddha, whom Jones and his allies thought they recognized as a philosophical hero, a Newtonian, behind the denunciatory libels of their Brahmin pundits. Second, and therefore, the Newtonian history they forged had important implications for the relationship between true philosophy and true religion. Buddha's universally diffused primordial Newtonianism had been corrupted the way the true religion had been corrupted by Roman Catholicism. Those were the two lessons Calcutta Newtonianism taught. Now, there's clearly, I mean, that's an understatement, isn't it? There's clearly an ambiguity in this project. Sometimes, as we've already seen in hints, it seemed apt to Calcutta Newtonianisms to find ancient astronomy in extant material of Sanskrit and Mughal knowledge. And then this would well justify the claim that an authentic Newtonianism had already been present in Asia whence its current inhabitants had very sadly declined. That's one possible way of developing this argument. But there's another way of developing the argument. By contrast, it might seem better to focus more on the contemporary predicament of Brahmin, that's to say Sanskrit, and Mughal astral sciences, and urge, rather, that they would do better meekly to absorb the true principles of British learning. And we saw that in the William Hunter statement, that I quoted to you earlier. Okay, so in the balance of time that remains to me, I want to explore both those moves, because both of those moves are made, and I want to look at two cases, two enterprises, which involve that move. One involving uh, the chief of the East India Company's Artillery Corps, a man called Thomas Dean Pierce, who's a friend of Burrow, and his arguments about ancient uh, Sanskrit learning, and finally and briefly the work of Reuben Burrow himself, Tafetzel's collaborator, the man who handed a copy of the Principia to the great Shiite mathematician. For Thomas Dean Pierce, the gunner, this was the puzzle. This is a contemporary, I mean 1990s photograph, of an observer working at one of the observatories built in northern India by the ruler of Amber, Jai Singh, in the 1720s and 1730s. Several of these great observatories are still extant in Ujjain, in Delhi, in Jaipur, and in Varanasi, Benares. Jai Singh's project was hybrid and brilliant. We are in the early decades of our 18th century He aimed to weld together in a complex whole the Sanskrit tradition of the Surya Siddhanta, up-to-date Islamic celestial models, and the best European astronomy. He sent delegates from his headquarters at Jaipur to Portugal to collect European astronomical tables and bring them back to Jaipur and elsewhere to incorporate them into his observatory. He also learnt, this is very well known, that European astronomical instruments don't work well in Europe and a fortiori in India. They warp and bend and melt. Brass instruments do not come up to the ideas which I have formed of accuracy because of the smallness of their size, their want of division into minutes, the shaking and wearing of their axes, the displacement of the centers of their circles, and the shifting of their planes. The Raja therefore decided to commission vast new stone devices which use the shadow cast by a gnomon, or a cunningly placed wire, to follow the risings, settings, and transit times of planets and stars. In one of Jai Singh's texts known as the aid to the representation of the European theory of the moon, there were diagrams in which it's clearly being assumed that the Earth moves around the sun, for example. He died in 1743. In 1771, the British army under the command of Robert Barker, whom we saw earlier, with Thomas Dean Pierce in command of the gun company, arrived at Jai Singh's observatory in Varanasi, in Benares. And this is their representation of the observatory on the Ganges. I mean, just to show you where it is, this is where it is. It's, the, it's there, up on the roof of this building overlooking the Ganga. Now, here's the point. Pierce and Barker admired, as who would not, the astonishing astronomical sophistication of this structure and therefore could not imagine that it was recent. It followed that the sophistication and splendor of these extraordinary astronomical instruments must be ancient since clearly India. So the logic of Pearson Barker's argument is that mathematical exactness is a sign, if it's not British, that instruments are at least two centuries and probably seven or eight centuries old since, quote, the arts appear to have declined equally with science in the East. These company go between link an assertion of timeless Sanskrit superiority with an assertion of absolutely decadent contemporary Brahmin learning to give Jai Singh's instruments a very, very ancient date indeed. Remember that uh, when this image was made, uh, the Gnomon on the left was 40 years old. And the British cannot imagine that's true at, at this point. Pierce went further. On, on his way back to Calcutta in 1779, he came across this text. Which is a work called The Wonders of Creation. The ajaib al-Maklukat, which had been made in uh, the 1260s of our era in Western Persia by the physician and judge Zakaria ibn Muhammad al-Khazvini. This is an encyclopedia of natural history, astrology and medicine. Pierce admired this figure in particular because it's the figure of Saturn. Why? In a letter that he wrote in 1780 and sent to the president of the Royal Society, Joseph Banks, in 1783. He copied out. Can you see it's the same image, right? So that's what he's seen. And this is the figure of Saturn. Now, why is this so striking? Saturn, as you see, appears seven-armed, holding a necklace, a scourge, a crown, a pick, a shovel, and a rat. It seemed obvious to Pierce that what was going on here was that this text sees Saturn as having six moons and a ring. A fact, well, there are two facts there. One fact is that Saturn has a ring. And as many of you will know, Europeans can only see Saturn's ring through a telescope. Secondly, in 1780, Saturn was known to have but five moons. So this image, says Pierce, shows A, that ancient Sanskrit astronomers had telescopes, and B, that there will be six moons around Saturn. And sure enough, in 1783, William Herschel in the west of England discovered the sixth moon of Saturn. So Pierce was arguing that a text which is in fact an astrological encyclopedia of the 1200s is an immemorially ancient Sanskrit text and it is evidence that Indian astronomers invented and possessed telescopes thousands of years ago, says Pierce. This argument does not play well at the Asiatic Society. In fact, uh, when Pierce died, as most of the people whom I discuss in my story did, rather early in his life at Serampore in July of 1789, William Jones was charged with the task of writing his obituary. I'm sorry we've lost Colonel Pierce, though he was an ill-tempered son of a bitch, and I don't believe in his seven arms or the satellites of Saturn." (laughs) So the commander of the East India Company's artillery corps is making the move that I've tried to show you is fairly characteristic of sections of Calcutta Newtonianism at this period. In order to be impressed by indigenous learning, one must make it immemorially ancient and then calibrate it against contemporary British science. The extreme example of that is the work of Reuben Burrow, Tafatzul's informant, collaborator and colleague. Let me, in closing, briefly evoke his work. He was from Yorkshire, he was often drunk, He was violent and passionate. He came from London to Calcutta in the wake of an expedition to Scotland where he'd been the first Newtonian mathematician to weigh the earth by conducting experiments in northern Scottish mountains now much celebrated since they occur in Thomas Pynchon's novel Mason and Dixon where he has a small but fascinating walk on part. He came to India specifically because he reckoned that contemporary Newtonian calculus had as its origin lost Arabic and Sanskrit mathematical algebraic texts. When he arrived in Calcutta in the 1780s, he set out to search for them. He got himself employed as surveyor for the company. This is a map of his journeys between 1787 and 1791. He travelled all the way up the Ganges to its source in Hardwar, where he was just before meeting Tafatsul in February of 1789, along the Brahmaputra towards the border with Assam and down the coast of Myanmar to Arakan as well. He was one of the most widely travelled of the Newtonian, uh, of the Calcutta Newtonians. But what is interesting at least for me about his work let me go forward to how he summarizes it is that the results of the surveys that Burrow conducted for the East India Company the first adequate maps of Bengal and the Gangetic plain made by the British surveyors were accompanied by this gloss by Burrow so this let me emphasize, is the view of Newtonianism and the doctrine of attraction that the man with whom Tafetzal was working in the summer of 1789 held. And I quote, from the aforesaid country, in other words, from northern India, the Hindu religion probably spread over the whole earth. There are signs of it in every northern country and almost every system of worship. In England, and I love this book, work with me on this. In England, it is obvious Stonehenge is evidently one of the temples of Buddha. I agree. And the arithmetic, astronomy, astrology, the holidays, games, names of the stars and figures of the constellations. The ancient monuments, laws and even the languages of the different nations have the strongest marks of the same original. So that's authentic Calcutta-Newtonian view. He goes on. The worship of the sun and fire, human and animal sacrifices have apparently once been universal and the religious ceremonies of the papists seem to have been a servile copy of the Sanskrit with the names changed. And finally, the most important Calcutta-Newtonian claim the different tenets of popery and deism have a great similarity to the two doctrines of Brahma and Buddha. In other words, Catholicism is Brahminism and deism is Buddhism. And as the Brahmins were the authors of the Ptolemaic system and in Europe, of course, the Catholics are, so the Buddhists appear to have been the inventors of the ancient Philolaic or Copernican as well as the doctrine of attraction. Okay. So this is the kind of view that Tafat native informants, as we might want to call them, developed. To summarise what I've been claiming here then, I've wanted to invert, first of all, an apparently self-evident hierarchy. I've wanted to treat the British as the go-betweens, and the Shiite analysts as the enlightened experts. I've wanted to try and evoke for us the specific tenets of a certain kind of Calcutta Newtonianism, shared by William Jones and Samuel Davis, Reuben Burrow and um, uh, Thomas Pierce, and I've wanted to contrast that with what we might call the pragmatic interests of Shiite scholars in appropriating the Newtonian project. But I've also wanted to do something else, which is to bring out the high degree of ambiguity in the resources that Calcutta Newtonianism brought to the Ganges Valley. On the one hand, we've seen scholars like Burrow and Pierce, I use the word scholar advisedly, making this sort of argument which is that the British Newtonians are Buddhists and now they're back. (laughs) We've also seen precisely the opposite claim being made by Hunter and Jones, son of a bitch, that this is an inadequate rendition of contemporary Mughal and Sanskrit skill and that in fact one must use British Newtonianism to calibrate and in that sense disqualify contemporary, that's to say late 18th century in our chronology, Sanskrit and Mughal expertise. Both of those arguments are co-present in Calcutta at the end of the 18th century. Let me close with this extraordinary text. In 1794, Thomas Beddoes, radical, Jacobin, chemist, desperately trying to be left wing in Oxford, wrote an epic poem, Alexander's Expedition Down the High Daspes and the Indus to the Indian Ocean. And what you see in this frontispiece of Beddo's poem is Burroughs' survey of the mouth of the Ganges, so the East India Company's survey of the mouth of the Ganges, overlain with a classical map. Of Alexander's ex- expedition from Babylon to the valley of the Indus. Beddoes used Burroughs' work and the work of Peirce to mobilize an argument against the East India Company. As a radical deist and Jacobin, Beddoes argued in this verse that the company model of governance in Bengal, the model associated, of course, with Hastings, during um, his trial, was corrupt and tyrannic, and he was not wrong. Rather, he wanted, did Beddows, a restoration of a primordial Newtonian deist order of international knowledge sharing and trade that would have displaced British commercial colonialism with a more, precisely, more Buddhist vision of international life. And I'll close with some of Beddo's lines because they're very moving, though the theology and cosmology on which they're based might not win our assent entirely. Mourn India, mourn, writes Beddoes, The womb of future time teems with the fruit of each portentous crime. From Christian strands, The rage accursed of gain wafts all the furies in her baleful train. What Newton on the Ganges allowed was that sort of complex critique, even in the period of the Revolution. Thank you.
2: The typical drill here is that uh, we will be using these microphones because the room is extremely dead. So uh, Matthew 2's will be on one side of the room, I'll be on the other, and we'll roughly alternate questions. And uh, uh, I'll actually ask the first one as a point of information. Um, what happened to the mathematical annotation? I'm not, I mean, uh, uh, the formulations, the uh, Uh, representation of mathematical concepts in the translation of the Principia into into Arabic.
1: Arabic, Um, Right. There are two answers to that. One, um, the Arabic translation is no longer extant, so it has to be reconstructed um, from descriptions in Farsi, some of which have been Englished um, by a colleague of mine in Oxford, Um, And it seems clear that the translation lacked diagrams, almost completely. And that raises a very interesting set of questions about what the Principia looked like in the particular culture where it was being appropriated. One of the implications of the kind of image of Newton's work that I wanted to dwell on, didn't really have time to dwell on, is that it's understood by the Shiite translators extraordinarily pragmatically. It's a series of doctrines of calculation. And if it's a series of doctrines of calculations, there's a sense in which you can mobilize almost the whole of the Newtonian program without diagram at all, Um, Since all you need is, for example, the method of first and last ratios which works without geometrical representation at all. One simply needs an abstract model of line length and then notions of increments of line length and he got that from Thomas Simpson and he didn't need at all actually the famous area law d- diagrams that we have in all our editions of the Principia. So that's one answer. You, you, you don't need the pictures. Okay. There's a different answer which is um, I think this awaits its historian since what we would have to understand and I don't and there are many people who understand this much better than I do, alas the person who understood this best, David Pingree, is no longer with us but there are others on whose work I'm relying, which is what is the role of the diagrammatic in the tradition into which Newton is being translated here and that raises a very interesting set of questions. You get some hint of that. For example, in the great astronomical tables of Beg, which all certainly knew extremely well, which do have diagrammatic representations of forms of calculation of planetary and satellite position. Right? And it seems to me we may well simply have lost the accompanying images. Right? It's extremely unlikely, finally, that the translation was printed. Right? Um, It's much more likely to have been distributed in manuscript form by the calligraphers in Bengal and then Lucknow and then in the south in Hyderabad. And then uh, I strongly suspect that it survives in library catalogues but is not recognized as such. So that's where we are.
3: Um, Yeah, first a a brief comment regarding the the sort of over the top claims of of Barrows about the the, um, originality of Hinduism, it seems to me that this does have to be resituated within the linguistic discoveries of Jones and the realization that Sanskrit actually was the ancestor. Of um, so so that was just a, a small point. The question I want to ask regards the the racial dimension of this, mm-hmm. and, and I wonder here if, if looking at the French uh, it might not um, add another twist to your story. Um, if you look at sort of Voltaire's fictional depiction of ancient India, yeah. they're always blue-eyed blonde-haired, white. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and this receives this sort of crazy cosmological uh, or mythological story in jean Sylvain Bailly, who's writing in the 70s, Absolutely. and sort of shifts the, the history of civilization instead of going east to west from north to south with this crazy theory of, of Atlantis. So I'm just wondering if, if your uh, Calcutian uh, or, or Newtonians are, are also thinking of this in, in racial terms at all.
1: That, I mean, I'll, I, I have something to say about both thoughts. Um, it goes without saying, as you noticed, since I didn't say it, that um, uh, what Burrow is is doing is incomprehensible without the annual discourses of the president of the society to which he is, after all, speaking as well. And the annual discourses of Jones are the texts in which uh, the, the common root of Sanskrit and European languages is urged famously, right? There's a reason to be cautious about a too hasty move between, roughly speaking, the philologist's paragraph and the kind of things that Burrow and Pierce are saying, and it's this, that um, this is more fundamental than language for this group, for the Asiatic society. This is a more important program them. The claim that there was once a primordially distributed set of true doctrines about the cosmos is a very different order of claim from a series of claims about the diffusion of tongues, right? since this is of the order of the epistemic, not simply the, the order of the linguistic. And they debate that much. I mean, in the letters between Burrow and Jones, which fortunately survived because Burrow is not always in Calcutta, it's much discussed as to what the relationship could be between the linguistic tracing and this more profound, as they see it, astronomical doctrine. One of the reasons for that, and this takes us to Bailly, um, is because, as I'm sure Professor Grafton will have said, if he didn't, should have done, um, in the previous Harry Camp lectures, chronology is the master science both of philology and astronomy. I mean, what Newton is famous for, perhaps at least as famous for in this culture as celestial mechanics, is the chronology of ancient kingdoms amended, on the basis of which almost all this work, certainly William Jones's mosaic work, is being erected. The final point I would make would take Slightly too long to develop, so let's go really fast. There is a further political dimension to this, which you see very, very clearly in Jones, in his correspondence published by Canon, and in Burrow explicitly on the face of the page, which is to identify orthodox Newtonianism with Buddhism and therefore with deism. And in 1789 to 1795, that is a radical political act from the British point of view. So that they're absolutely in sympathy with Jean-Sylvain Bailly and the idea of the Scythians and 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 Atlantide and so on. But within 10 years, all of this will stop. And the reason it will stop is because the governor general of the company is Richard Wellesley, brother of Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, and the whole intelligentsia in Calcutta will be mobilized against the Jacobins, against deism, against anything French, and against all the nonsense that I've been describing here. A college will be built in Fort William to make sure that servants of the company do not fall into these errors, lest the principles of the revolution in France spread to the Ganges. And that brings this program to an end. Right, so it's very important to as it were, address the dialogue with the French because it's what's going to poison the politics of this project. So it's a really important point for us that that you're raising.
4: Simon, your comments actually in response to Dan's question got me thinking about something in the back of my mind. What I am very struck by is the way in which we can also see this project, not only as you've just wonderfully shown as a project with very specific British connotations, but also as a project in a sort of ongoing reflection about the global nature of knowledge and truth. And so one of the things that struck me, came out I think especially, well in your response is that in the prior two centuries, Mm Right, the equivalent project that one would look for was conducted first by the Jesuits and then by the French. Um, And in the case of the Jesuits, the universal truth was of course faith and any comments about questions of knowledge would emanate from the discovery that indeed Christianity had already always been there, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in Asia um, and to a lesser degree in the Americas. And from that you would then sort of think about the relationship of whatever you thought about knowledge, but there was never any presupposition that one should start from this other premise. And then you might say that possibly as a kind of in-between project between this project of the Jesuits, um, of science and faith, lies the project, say, of the French Jesuit missions in which politics Mm -hmm. and faith now become interestingly intertwined and lead to a sort of writing of a history of Chinese science. Um, in the way that Florence Shaw and a number of other people you know have begun to sort of really look at carefully in the late 17th and early 18th century. So the question that comes out of this comment is, is in, the, in, the, in, this, in this literature that you've been looking at to what extent is there a consciousness of moving away from or reacting to these earlier kinds of projects of global knowledge mm-hmm. right and of understanding the antiquity of the knowledge that you believed to be the truth in the present? Mm
1: -hmm. I think it is present. I think, I mean, what I've wanted to suggest is that both moves are being made in this period. That's to say, on the one hand, clearly an announcement of absolute novelty and the valorization of certain kinds of knowledge because nothing like this has been known or said before. And on the other hand, the, the much more familiar Baroque, Argument that uh, this is true because it's been known since the creation of the world and it is now brought back to light and both of those arguments are made and in a certain sense what it behoves us to think about and obviously you've done this wonderfully well for the earlier period and and the Jesuit period in Kirche and so on is what is the baggage that is carried in these colonial and global political settings by emphasizing one or the other of these arguments since they have both tactical and strategic functions, right? I mean, two corollaries to that. One, the company both completely relies on and completely expels and rejects the Jesuit enterprise, right? it is both entirely dependent on Dual, let's say. I mean, everything company agents know about Qing, China, comes from the Jesuits before 1793, before the McCartney expedition em- embassy. Right? So it's entirely mediated through this trans-Himalayan world. Right? Yet on the other hand, it is, it is precisely to get round that somehow that the company is working very hard and secondly there's an absolutely concrete commercial pocketbook reason for this which is that the company is broke and the reason the company is broke is because the English drink tea and the Chinese don't want anything for their tea from us reasonably enough and that's the economic predicament of Calcutta in the (coughs) 1780s that's the situation that they're in as far as the long-range trading system of the company is concerned. So one can't, though I just have, tell a story about company intellectuals without relating it to some very basic facts about global geocommercial politics. I don't think you can understand, as it were, their options for this is entirely new, this is known since the end, since the creation of the world, without setting that in the... Ba- around the basic commercial facts of the matter as far as the Bengal system is concerned. I mean, what is going to happen next? What is going to happen next is, thanks to banks and the Q system, tea will arrive in Assam and opium, and very different forms of knowledge will begin to appear. Understand, finally, that the company was rather keen to make sure that they were not missionaries on the territory that it it controlled, for reasons one sees, I think, in these texts. So I think it's a very complicated issue. Keith? Yes, I have a question about uh, Newton specifically. Uh, This doctrine that Newtonianism is a recovery of an ancient wisdom, you made your shift in your lecture by pointing to Newton's uh, thoughts about Stonehenge and his uh, writings about alchemy generally. Uh, the question is,
4: how well known were those writings? Because weren't most of those secret?
1: And how far did uh, Jones and these people in Calcutta actually associate this doctrine or learn of this doctrine from Newton? Mm-hmm. Or are there other intermediaries uh, into other uh, contexts which
0: allow, which which they are allowed to put Newton in?
1: Sure. Wonderful question. Um, I think what has been shown by the most recent scholarship on Newton's, certainly on his theological work, is it was much more widely known than one supposed heretofore, than than I was taught, for example. Um, So that, for example, the account that there are Pretanea, that there was a universally diffused Newtonian truth, that this truth was lost, and that it has been resuscitated by Isaac Newton, is the first and second sections of a book by Newton called The System of the World, which is the text that he wrote in 1685 and which was published in London in 1728 uh, verbatim and read by a very large number of people. This is the text, however, that Newton himself suppressed and replaced by the third book, of the Principia that we now have in the Latin and English versions. So, as it were, so that phrase, Plato in his riper years and so on, is in the English version that's published posthumously. And it's very well known, and it's cited by Jones, and it's cited by Burrough. Right? On the other hand, you're absolutely right, goes back to, Dan, Dan, to Dan's point about Bailly, for example, that there are also many intermediaries between the moment of the 1710s and 20s, and the period which I'm discussing. Precisely the the discussion in Bailly's Atlantide and in his Histoire de l'astronomie indienne, the discussions in works like Warburton's uh, book on the history of hieroglyphics, which I'll be talking about tomorrow in the seminar. Um, Those recapitulate and expand upon these these stories and, and intuitions. In a sense, it's because of a certain misleading account of what Newton means that one has, as I've done perhaps, to exaggerate the uh, idiosyncrasy of the Newtonian position that I've characterized. This is the default position, it seems to me, and what's to be explained is the emerging skepticism of this kind of diffusionism and this kind of revivalist Story, Since the dominant position, this is Colin Kidd's argument about ethnic theology in the Enlightenment, is this position. This is, for example, the position of the greatest historian of uh, working in the Scottish Enlightenment, William Robertson, principal of the University of Edinburgh, whose final book is a book called The Knowledge That the Ancients Had of India. It's entirely based on this claim. So this is the, I think this is normal in a sense, and I've probably been wrong so much to associate it specifically with Newton. But that's what the Calcutta uh, folk did.
2: There's time for one more brief question. Je- Jessica Riskin, your introducer. Oh, okay,
0: thank you. Um, I uh, had a question about Calcutta Newtonianism, which, I, I mean, it seems to me um, fascinatingly flexible in the sense that it can serve... Um, different sets of interests and I'm just wondering Absolutely. if you could speculate a little bit about that was it, is it was it generated by competing sets of interests sort of as a kind of parallel process or was it generated by one set and then co-opted by others or I mean how does that work?
1: Mm. <laughs> right. It is fascinatingly flexible. Tools are only useful if they are. It's not more fascinatingly flexible than any other kind of Newtonianism, I think, and um, it on the whole seems to me to be rather doctrinaire. The ambiguity, the, the flexibility that you correctly want to point us to, is I've tried to show an extraordinarily functional flexibility since both of the arguments which I'm associating with this position have functional uses. On the one hand, the argument that um, the Sanskrit intellectuals whom the British are encountering are degenerate with respect to a primordial understand British form of knowledge. On the other hand, the claim that contemporary Sanskrit Jyoti Shastra is gonna have to submit in a more dramatic sense to Uh, the dictates of Newtonianism, right? Both of those arguments are being made simultaneously. Now, what is the resonance of that? What is the sociology? What what is the historical sociology of that? The historical sociology of that is partly the extraordinarily complex relationship between the writers, as they're called. That's the name of the company servants. They're called writers, as Miles Ogborn reminds us in his recent magnificent book, Indian Ink, the writing of the East India Company, the writers are simultaneously completely dependent on their intermediaries and entirely concerned with a project which would want to make them autonomous. So the social praxis which this speaks to is, for example, the predicament of Burrow and Jones and Davis and Hunter, which is that in order to act, must be translated by Pandits if it's Sanskrit and Bengali or by Munshis if it's Farsi or Arabic. And again and again in the letters one has a simultaneous move, right, which is epistemic and political in in one move, which is to say, um, trust me, my account of the Siddhanta Shastra is completely reliable because my pundit has read it over and he says it's okay, right? And I'm mastering Sanskrit, so I no longer have to tell you that. And both of those things are said, sometimes in the same sentence, in a letter from Jones and in one from Burrow, right? So these are the guarantees of reliability and they must be got rid of, right? Now that is a very, and that's what happens between five in the morning and nine in the morning every day of one's working life, which is when you write, when you sit with your Munshi or your Pandit. Right? So I, that's part of the predicament they're in, just sort of on an everyday basis, and it's easy to forget that. Right? Can I be really weird and strange? Jim Clifford had a question. No? Well, f- later. Okay. Enough. Right. So
2: with that, thank you, Simon Schaffer, for a fantastic